Hi, this is Isaac Arthur. Welcome to the show and don't forget to check out this month's Nebula exclusive, Giant Space Monsters. To get access and help support the show while hearing every episode early and ad free, plus hours of bonus content, check out go.nebula.tv slash Isaac Arthur and use my code Isaac Arthur. Good afternoon everyone and welcome to Science of Futures with Isaac Arthur, our monthly livestream Q&A and as usual I'm joined by my lovely wife and co-host Sarah Fowler Arthur who will be reading your questions off from the chat. And I believe Sindri will be joining us today to help moderate. Please get your questions into him in as neat a fashion as possible because I think he's the only one today. This again is a bit of a holiday setting. We had the choice of doing it the usual last Sunday. That was Christmas Day or this weekend which is New Year's Eve and this seemed like a better choice. So <laughs> with all that said, let's get started. Well, we are apparently throwing people off by the day because uh, Albert Jackinson said, wait, is this Sunday? It's Saturday. Are you sure? I am. It is the last day of the old year and we are getting ready to send it off with the final live stream of 2022, in 2022. I won't miss it either that much. It wasn't, it wasn't a bad year, it was a very hectic year, very hectic year. So, That's right. true. We're, our, our New Year's resolution is to be much more organized and strategic uh, in the coming year. Yeah, I'm usually pretty organized, but this year it's a little bit hard to keep up with that. So, Are you ready for the I first question? <laughs> All right. Um, from Riemann <clears throat> Sullivan, are there any programs where you can input planet parameters and it will simulate what the condition of the surface would be based on weather and temperature and things like that, or at least give some sort of descriptions? I mean, to a degree, there's a number of Game softwares do things along those lines. I think even Stellaris has a function like that. <clears throat> you know, it's more space-based, but uh, by and large, nothing I'd really call very accurate just because we don't have that data yet. Um, I, I'm i not certain, but I think I would say that the Cool Worlds Lab was looking at possibly doing something like that, but that might be me confusing conversations. So. Um, but there's a lot of options for doing that in the future. However, to actually having this be accurate, we need more data. So we don't have much to work off of yet. It does sound like a cool idea, though. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And we Well, um, this was uh, the second week uh, that our longtime cover artist, Jacob Greig, was finally been on an extended vacation. And the uh, first thing he sent me was uh, a big, long list of 4,000 bits of AI-generated already done on landscaping. So we can think I'm on alien landscapes in space. They were gorgeous. And I'm thinking, I'm wondering if I should give it a try, too, though I don't think I'd do it as well as Jacob would. But we might do an episode on AI art. In addition to our normal ones, just because that's kind of that seems like a fun thing to do at the last minute. That does but. sound fun. Dave Tucker actually <clears> has an episode suggestion for you. He says, "Hi Isaac, Happy New Year! I was wondering if you could make a video about Zeno compatibility, a potential sequel to multi-species cohabitation. cohabitation. Yeah. But what are the real chances that this can happen, if at all? I mean, I wouldn't mind doing another episode on that, though. That falls in like." Where the Alien Civilization series is at, I don't like to do episodes on that more than, you know, maybe maybe five or six a year because either way, like 60 episodes, it is always a bit of a softer topic that's not too highly science-y. So there are endless sci-fi alien tropes we could play with, but as much as I could certainly revisit that topic and might do so because I don't remember how long ago the episode was, there was certainly a lot more to say, but I might do too many Alien Civs episodes in a, in a certain period of time. Um, let's see... Realism-wise, could you have uh, an alien husband or wife and have children with them? Uh, and of course, the question is first: is is that even vaguely possible to make sense? You know, would you ever expect to be cross compatibility? It's like they are less related to you than an oak tree is. Is the idea there? It's not really going to work out very well. Um, but when you throw science in the mix, the game does change a lot, and especially in certain things like Star Trek. You say, well, you got Spock, the half human, half hybrid, you know, uh, Vulcan hybrid. You had Deanna Troy, half human, half Beta Z, but then they have an episode that says, oh, well, almost all the humanoid race in the galaxy were seeded by the same alien life form in the, uh, I think it was the episode was called The Pursuit in like one of the later seasons of Next Generation, but uh, not very realistic at all, to be honest. But with technology, all sorts of things can be made possible. You just kind of use brute force uh, gene hacking, get it done. <laughs> <laughs> Gertjen Eznick says, Hi Isaac, recently you told us about getting homeschooled. We don't know about this in the Netherlands, and as I'm a teacher, I am very curious about it. Hmm. Um, ironically, my wife can probably answer the question for you better because she did her entire education that way and helped with her younger siblings. I did homeschooling from most of six on through 12, though that was only like four years. Uh, we skipped me a couple of grades in the middle of that. Um, 
and I did go back briefly for ninth grade for a while, but uh, everyone's different, you know, different experience with it. When I was doing it in the, the early 90s, it was not a very formal system in Ohio, and I got tested maybe once or twice, I mean, the whole time. And then just ACT is not a college. Uh, I think I might have been a low priority target because they knew I was going to college track already. But, uh, you know, it was different for a lot of different people. Every state does differently. But the basic idea is that you do your schooling at home with your parents or some other teacher, maybe a tutor, usually your parents. And they have to, these days, they always have to have you pass certain basic parameters. Don't they like, there's testing to do? Standards. Yeah. But yeah. it's largely parent-directed education or... Um, individual tutor if the parent chooses to hire one. Yeah. And I mean, that's going to vary a lot. There's a lot of programs that do it a little bit differently. And again, it's so variable by state that it's hard to really give you a, a standard process. That's how it is in Ohio. You know, um, go to a different state, different rules. And some places, for instance, you have to have a college degree to actually do it. Other places, it's you know much more what the parents, you know, want to do is more important than whether they hit some qualifications and it does vary a lot but basically i'd, I'd say what i like about the most is because it's almost all one-on-one -on -one teaching or you know small small group teaching it's faster you, you don't have to spend hours a day doing it in fact i pretty much got handed a textbook and told to go on and that was it so and mine was much better in the sense that it was more experiential learning yeah. so uh basically i've owned the business since i was 11 years old and had the opportunity to run it learn from it tweak it and expand and that is one of the freedoms that you have when you're not stuck in a school building specifically for six or eight hours a day yeah i think not not pitching people on this i'd say every student should be homeschooled to some degree or another because the parents you know you, if you want your kid to do good in school you got to do that at home with them too so uh whether or not you're doing them in school as well i can never think you can get too much education but um, let's see. Speaking that. of which, very mm -hmm. proud of our two oldest children for having mastered the art of reading. <laughs> yes, for having mastered the art of reading over the holidays, working with mom. Woo woo! And our son has now read eight books, stories, sorry, and our daughter has read five. So yeah. they are getting very proficient from only being able to sound words out to being able to actually read. Very exciting. Well, uh, for context, everyone who didn't catch that, we. Last live stream was the first live stream we'd done right after adopting kids, uh, well, technically the foster kids for a few months, but adopting three kids that are siblings, ages six, five, and four, and uh, we had just gotten them in the house a couple of days before we did the last live stream. This is much calmer now, right now, so, uh, and uh, they are bright, smart, cute. We're not allowed to say their names, That's so they are boy one, girl, and boy two, and that has the age range on them, boy, girl, boy. And we're not allowed to show photographs of them yet until they're formally adopted, which will probably be, it could be summertime, but late spring at the very earliest, I'd say. So a very interesting experience in keeping us on our toes. And uh, I, I, I'm surprised my hair hasn't all turned gray in the meantime, but it's walking its way there. <laughs> I was going to say, maybe your beard is a little more gray, but I think the top is still darker. Maybe it just helps that I cut the tips off. That's true, yeah. It's a, I, I always just my hair cut, but then the COVID hit, and it's like, well, okay, I, I, my wife can cut my hair now. That's, that's what I'm grateful for. So. <laughs> the next question here is from Lou Brown. He says, when might we be able to discern the twist and distribution of chiral molecules in an exoplanet's atmosphere, such as life science detected <clears throat> captain moment wanted? Mm. I think the issue with almost any biodetection is what's the dwell time on it. Um, you know, one of the things we like about, say, red dwarf systems is they tend to be really low on ultraviolet light. We have a episode coming up to discuss that in a little bit more detail in about a month, high CN worlds, uh, hydrogen ocean worlds. But um, around red dwarfs, that's ultraviolet, so it's going to be a longer dwell time with a lot of organic molecules. Most things don't fail well under UV light, organic molecules in particular. So um, if they have a longer dwell time or if the of the product when it gets dissolved has a long dwell time, which some do, that becomes whether or not you can see it. I don't, off the top of my head, know what those would be for very many things, though, besides like methane or ammonia. Those are the ones we usually read, you know, all baseline ones. But uh, I would tend to think almost anything much more complicated would be very hard to actually get them in there very long. My wife is glaring at me that I'm not looking at the camera much, because actually she sits behind the camera directly at me, so staring at her right now. So. 
Well, if you stay off in space while you're talking, people start, like, you know, not paying attention. I usually, like, stop looking at people when I'm actually talking, though, because I'm trying to think of an answer. I'm supposed to stay out there fast. So I hope that answered the question, which I've now forgotten. <laughs> that was <laughs> bad. <laughs> Very bad. Moving on, we have a super chat here from Crossover Maniac. How could a K2 civilization support a population of 10 to the 23rd power when we average 2 kilowatts of power per person now without space travel and megastructure construction? Well, I think we usually, I mean, I, I usually just put it somewhere around 10 to the 18th through 10 to the 20th um, as the population there. So that's, that's you know, that's five orders of magic on the bottom end of that. 10 to the 23rd people would be... A hundred billion trillion, and that would be the same as trying to support on Earth the equivalent of. I have to do this in my head now. You know, I, I think we're assuming it's about a trillion people per for the planet. So we have to calculate the figures getting that one, but it is doable um, if you have enough wattage on that, because the sun puts off what four times ten to twenty six watts, and then ten to twenty third, so you like three three kilowatts per person, four kilowatts per person. 3.86 kilowatts per person. I think they just did that to see how specific you would be in your math. Probably not. <laughs> but so like, so four kilowatts per person, that's doable because I think we worked out one time that you could get photosynthesis, very active, like hydroponic photosynthesis on uh, like even as low as two kilowatts. Well, if you were tailing every last photon coming out of the plants to hit them and engage in actual photosynthesis as opposed to infrared or, or you know, anything that's not useful, bouncing around and absorbed. And then, of course, on the other side of that, there's always the dismemberment option. You know, it sounds a little weird, but you actually burn less calories if you're missing arms and legs. Um, so we could do things like cyborg you up. Um, you know, if you're just a, a head in a tank, I think it's about 15% of your calories are used by your brain. So that instantly, like, seven times the more population. So there's your option. That's about an order of magnitude. And you could always go more digital, but, yeah, so you should be able to do it. That's disturbing. About but true. If somebody said, <laughs> Stefan says, I love your channel. It's easy to fall asleep to after hours of struggling to stay awake. Listening to interesting topics while I sleep gives inspiration for futuristic dreams. Like having all of your body parts amputated and only a head left. I mean, that I could think, be a very concerning uh, well, dream. I, I remember the first time I actually went around working there because I couldn't think of why anyone would do that. It was in an Alistair Reynolds novel, which a lot of them were. I must say it was uh, the prefect. And there was a place where people had uh, had everything, but you know, not just their heads, but like all their glands uh, stored them too, and they also amputated them. And uh, yeah, strange but interesting topic. Yeah, it's hard to say what people might do in the future because if you're just a brain of that, um, you know, the rest of that stuff is just in the way potentially, and you might just want a robot body you can lease for an hour or two when you need to be, uh, you know, up a couple levels in the real world. Uh, well, up a couple levels in this world. Let's go with that. So. Albert Jenkins says, Good afternoon, Isaac and Sarah. A late Merry Christmas and a Happy New Year's Eve. <coughs> Having Christmas recently got me thinking, what season-based holidays might arise on other planets in our solar system? Hmm. Um, you know, that's the interesting is probably not that very many because uh, Mercury would have some interesting ones. We'll come back to Mercury in a moment, but Venus just has that basically that all around the year crappy weather, uh, <laughs> sun side and dark side, basically. So... Um, and then Mars is very similar to ours. It's just it's a relatively cold planet with a longer one than ours. When you start getting out to the uh, outer planets, though, or the asteroids, it's so long for anything that would be seasonal. And this is orbiting the plant, uh, the sun, that I don't think you really want to use it as a holiday. On the flip side, if you thought about like the moons around Jupiter that orbit, you know, on an order of a few days, usually it depends on them. Some are less than one day. They could actually do seasons that were based off things like that orbital resonances or where they were relative to Jupiter and the Sun at that time, things like that could potentially pop up. Uh, you might have a pretty big deal when it was that time of year when you on one of the moons of Jupiter got to see Jupiter opaque the Sun and you could eclipse it. And that's a very different experience there because Jupiter is huge in the sky compared to what the moon is if you're on one of those inner moons. Could be a bit uh, ominous. Yeah. Eh. And long, you know, you're mostly waiting to orbit out of it. It's like the other way around where the moon just swings back through. You're stuck behind Jupiter for a bit. But. Hmm. Hey, here's an interesting question from Timothy Keeper. He says, the term paradox is used quite a bit, but it seems to more about the limits of human understanding to accurately grasp the concept, thus creating a perceived paradox. Um, you know, that's a, a very good point that we raise occasionally in episodes to say, 
if, 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 if paradox really is impossible, if we're assuming the only definition for the word paradox is actually impossible, then it's pretty much a useless word. You could just say that's an impossible situation. You don't need it. So for our purposes, not so much for the definition of what the word should be in English language, but what it should be in terms of our discussions, we'd say any situation that on, on heavy examination, you're not just casual, but heavy examination still does not appear to make sense. Like, I do not believe there is a paradox between, you know, quantum mechanics and, you know, the macroscopic world. I don't believe there are paradoxes there. I think that everything that's going on there is possible, and that it actually makes sense, and that the contradictions are simply a lack of all knowing. Nonetheless, in the meantime, we, you know, we'll keep with the EPR paradox and things like that. So, Fermi paradox, EPR paradox, Orbos paradox, which is solved, you know, we have these paradoxes until we get an answer to them. And then they're not a paradox anymore, so we still keep calling them out of habit, you know. So, uh, did I say habit? You did. Out of habit. Have you been hobbiting a lot? I gotta start speech therapy back up again. I only went to have like a two year break. <laughs> I thought it was only like a year or Well, a year no, it's, and been, half. it's been like a year and a half. I only meant to do it for a few months, though. So, but, uh, yeah, I'll get back at that. Starting to slip. Oh, what was what was the question? You know, oh, just paradoxes being real or not. Oh, yes. Paradoxes are probably not paradoxes. A random galactic hitchhiker made it one minute in advance and was happy to join the countdown. And then he also had a question. Do you see a change in corporate structure and the way they do business in light of post-scarcity or more of the same? Um, I don't think that you do business in, in a scarce, in like, we usually see on the show the context, two, two amendments, the concept of post-scarcity. One, uh, we say post-scarcity in the sense that some desired resource, need or whatever it is, is itself easy enough to get that doesn't really cause you anxiety. Not in the sense that it's infinite or that's necessarily free or supply, just it's so easy to get your hands on that everybody pretty much has it, as much as they reasonably would want to have it. And then the second amendment we took the concept of post-scarcity, again, for the purpose of discussion on the show, is we say you're post-scarcity in certain areas. And you might call it a post-scarcity you know, situation if everybody has a warm bed to sleep in and plenty of food you know, and medicine. That's pretty post-scarcity by modern standards even, but certainly to our, our, our ancestors. But there's still a lot more things you could do to, that would still be scarce. So it's not a question of how does how do corporations or, or things like that work in a you know, post-scarcity environment. It's how does somebody work when doing a product that's post-scarcity. And that makes it a little bit easier to examine because we have that. Um, I have three failed predictions from my early 20, you know, my teens and early 20s that I said, of my reminders to be a little bit more humble about stupid stuff people want. And bottled water is one of those. I never thought that bottled water would ever take off. I was a rural kid. I was used to drinking out of a tap and the hose was right up. No big problem, right? Water fountain good enough for me. I never thought bottled water would catch on. If you're curious, the other two were I didn't think the Mighty Morphine Power Rangers would survive season one. I thought it was an awful show. Uh, I don't know if that's really fair or not, but that's what I thought. And I didn't think text messaging was going to be popular. <laughs> text messaging, well, right. Just because you don't do it even now doesn't mean that well, it's I not popular. Well, I do do it more now than I used to. But what's, what, what I didn't realize was, because it was like, why, especially back then, you had to tap the button three times to make it work, right, uh, to get one letter. It was like, this is like a telegraph. It's like doing Morse code. Why would you want this as opposed to video calls? And the answer, because it isn't a mystery, it's not a paradox, the answer is that a video call means you have to answer it and people see that you are ruffled. We do do video calls nowadays. It's just not this big deal of people being wanted. Uh, whereas with a text message, it might take you 30 seconds to write the message that you could have said in five, but you only have to have that 30 seconds of conversation. And that's the key. The, you know, most time when you're contacting people, you really do not have time to have a long conversation with them right then, or you don't want them to hear the uncertainty of your voice, the irritation, things like that. It's because of the throttled bandwidth that text messaging is popular. The flip side, bottle water is just very easy to carry around. But it is an example of a post-scarcity commodity. I don't know if there's any place in the world where this really has problems getting drinking water other than a relatively few areas that all, you know, crisis hit. You know, your, your various third world zones, and even those usually have access to fresh water. Um, some areas limited won't have for crisis, but everywhere else has more than enough drinking water. It's effectively free. So why do people pay for it? Right? And that's because it's relatively cheap, too. They like the nice, easy, you know, portable bottle. It's clean, right? Um, post-scarcity examples like that might be air. People buy oxygen. They will suck on oxygen bottles. There's no more post-scarcity item you can get than oxygen. Right? It's all around. Maybe a smoggy city, you might want a higher end of that, though. But you'll have examples like that with any commodity. There's going to be that extra step up there. Like, 
anybody can go get pounds of penny candy. I don't think they're probably not for a penny anymore because of inflation. But, well, it depends yeah. on where you go, but yes. Well, I could get a Tootsie Roll for one penny when I was a kid. And, yes. But back then, you could get, like, it, it, inflation's been about four times. It since depends then. on your taste now. If, yeah. if you're willing to have Tootsie Rolls or fruit chews, you can still get them for a penny. Right. But people still go pay like 10, 20 bucks for a confectionery, a really yes. complex one. They could just have their sweet, sweet candy, you know, in the cheap format. Instead, they decide to do more. So that's where you're going with the post scarcity thing with a commodity like that. There's still a market for it, but you have to, to do something that makes it better. Preparation, uh, branding, ease of access. That's where you're moving the shift to. I hope that made sense. Yes. Okay. <laughs> Thank you. Household Adventures, thank you for your super chat. Do you have any opinions on the expanding Earth theory? The expanding Earth theory? Correct. No. <laughs> okay. I have never heard that one. <laughs> well, that was a I, quick I'm answer. I'm curious about that. If somebody wants to like, send that on, and, you know, they, I would love to know more I about thought, that. I thought we were going to have a one-word answer, and that was going to be like, wow, it might be the first time since I've been on this program that I've you actually that had a one-word answer. You were shocked answer. the last time I did, too. So. Well, I am shocked. <laughs> Kenyon Moon says, could you arrange an electromagnetic setup of some sort on a space habitat such that it creates a magnetic field capable of doing like the Earth and protecting us? Yeah. Um, this is the critical thing when people talk about restarting Mars core by like drilling a hole and nuking it over and over again, which is a poor waste of weaponry. Um, but um, you can make magnets far easier than with spinning metal. We have electromagnets in our civilization, and we have molten metal, uh, and we never really use the one for that purpose um, because a big ball of spinning molten metal is actually a really bad magnet. It's just that when you're spinning. What's about 10 to 24 kilograms of, of molten iron and uranium and stuff? That's very effective as a magnet compared to one you're going to put in your house. But it's so much easier with something like an O'Neill cylinder, which is already spinning, to just turn that into an electromagnet. Um, either this natural spin might be enough, but you could just run a current wire around it and bam, electromagnet. Way more powerful than you would get on a planet, too. You can amp that stuff up, and I suspect most will have it. In fact, I suspect Earth will eventually have an artificial magnetic field added on to the one we have just to further dampen the ion radiation in the air up orbits. Nancy Mattis said, thank you for your super chat. <coughs> Will the world economics in the next 100 years invest heavily in space? Would it benefit all of us worldwide in any good way? Hmm. Um, yes, yes, and yes. Though I, I should add on to those, not as much as we'd like, um, and I don't want the others to on the other ones, but big maybes and bad things too. I mean, for every, you know, one day we'll have a rotating habitat that's our first one that checks like the gravity on Mars or the moon and see what people can live like on that. And then also one day someone's going to put an order weapons platform up there that people are going to be worried is going to blow their house up from space. Um, and uh, both of those things will probably happen in the next 50 years, you know, <laughs> treaties aside. Um I think that's the key thing there is will there be a lot more research in the going space? Yeah. We've spent trillions on it already. You know, we talk about NASA's budget not being as high as we'd like, but now the fun back in land other countries, we've spent over a trillion dollars on space exploration research. And uh, I wouldn't want to give a number more accurate than that, but I think it's a few trillion at this point. And that's uh, that's definitely made a lot of progress, and I'd say it definitely qualifies as a big investment. I think some other good points here, some of your audience have commented that text messaging is also helpful for some people who are deaf or um, in communicating with uh, different time zones and people on different schedules. So yep. those are also great points. Those are great points, though. I think uh, the, the key thing on that is while those are true, that's you know not going to apply the vast majority of texting. I think it usually is happening between people who probably can hear and probably do live in the same time zone as you. Uh, although that is certainly a true point that was made. Mm -hmm. uh, question here from Rob Hawk. Thank you for your super chat, Rob. How might the universe bite back if human civilization started to spread from galaxy to galaxy at a hyperlight speed? What was the first part of that question? How might the universe bite back? Um, I mean, you're assuming a, a conscious universe in some fashion that would want to bite back at you. Um, you know, you can make a case like we had that episode recently on the Gaia hypothesis where with the version of that called the Medea hypothesis, there is a, a thought that they could have a conscious world that is actively seeks to kill off uh, more complicated life forms. Um, and uh, I don't really see a good case for the universe itself being treated as an organism. Um, 
they'll be likely to act that way with any kind of natural coordinated pattern. Um, if we're talking about alien civilizations in general, I think the only way they could really buy back at us if we start expanding really fast was if they had done so too, in which case it's probably everybody biting at each other instead. Um, and we've lucked out and not being their zone. But I really think the biggest thing that would slow down coordinated expansion would be that you constantly have your own fringe territories breaking away too. It really doesn't slow down your colonization if you're not really aiming for everyone to be unified, be it just tricky without fast and light travel, but I think you do have fast and light or instant travel, you'd start having constant um, fighting for your fringes at war with them, you know, leaving or wanting to leave, and uh, or who's colonizing next space. Whereas in the current model, it's more like, you know, Neolithic tribes going out and colonizing parts of a continent. Once they've broken up from each other for a couple of generations, they're not in contact at all anymore, so... Um, Jeff D., thank you for your super chat. What does the recent fusion announcement actually mean towards usable fusion power? I've read articles that say it was energy positive, but others say that it is still energy negative. Well, um, boilerplate, it is progress. Um, It is real progress. It's very positive, real progress. It is a bit overhyped, or I should say, a lot of the people discussing it are overhyping it. This happens a lot with the fusion ones. Um, and it's kind of bite back on these things. Has there been real progress? Yes. But now, what do we mean by um, you know uh, break even? Um, you know, getting in. If I zap a nuclei with a certain amount of energy and it produces more energy in its release than I than I zapped it with, that is technically getting more out of it. But that's that's one way to get a little bit more out of it. Next is if I blew a huge laser or something and I only actually fused seven or eight particles, each will get out like, you know, more energy out of it than I put in to them individually, you could say that didn't really break even because I threw billions of joules at the thing and I may have got a million out of it. I just happened to have gotten more into the ones I put it in. And then you can go, well, that beam that hit, that was only like 1% of the total power we blew into that thing. Um, the, the key there is when does it actually get to the point of being self-sustainable? And there's different ways to measure that metric because... In the end, self-sustainable is, when is it the point where I can actually sell energy to people cheaper than they're getting it right now, um, including all the actual capital costs of building that fusion plant? That's your real break-even. That is not what we're looking for to be in developing it in a more R&D sense of actually deploying it, because that's you, know, you take steps there. You get it more economical with scale. But right now, what we've got is another step of, well, we've put more in. We, oh, sorry. We put less in than we got out. And I think in this case, it was the beam itself actually had less energy than was released. But I have to check that. It's another step along the way, though. So we have a question here from Elizabeth Davis, a Babylon 5 question. She says, why did the Minbari believe Minbari souls were in humans? And were they going to try to get the Minbari souls back into Minbari bodies somehow? Um... You know, I love B5, but it's one of those ones from like the 90s and before where for some reason sci-fi in that era always, you know, like, well, we're going to have no superstitious beliefs. We're very rational people, but for some reason we're all down with psychic powers. They're very real. You can see the future and, and have telepathy. Um, I don't know why the Mimbari, well, I would assume that the Mimbari are probably actually having their souls transferred from humans in that story just because this plot of that, of that. The setting does allow that, but at the same time, I don't know why that would happen. I don't think JMSO covers that. I think the only example they actually had of that was with uh, Valen slash Spoilers Sinclair. And, uh, you know, if you haven't seen the series, go watch it because it's wonderful. But do not watch the movie in the beginning, which was the later on prequel TV show, TV made for TV movie they made, which is horrible because if you like them in Bali, you will hate them after that film because they just did a very bad job rationalizing why they attacked humanity uh, before they'd see like a horrible tragic accident that they see like just jokes motorized <laughs> jokes so, but uh, I couldn't really answer beyond that JMS is I gather uh, um, the show founder JMS he is pretty good about answering emails I'm told so you might want to just email him directly Isaac Bordeaux says what other things could a matryoshka brain compute besides a lot of people uh <laughs> We stumped him. We stumped him. It, well, it does seem like the, you know, usually there's, there's two things that people always ask on that is, is what, what would you do with all of that processing power? I, like, I don't know, calculate the digits of pi. If you are big enough intelligence to actually be able to calculate trillions of digits of pi beyond what we do now, 
Um, I feel like you'd be smart enough to know how futile that process was. Um, unless somebody gets a Nobel Prize in math. Oh, sorry, there's no Nobel Prize for that. But, you know, the, um, was it the last call? Anyway, the big prize for math, um, you know, it's suddenly showing that there actually is some pattern to the pi's digits. I don't think that there's actually much reason why a machine would do something like that. So a lot of times we need to ask, we'll say, what else would you do with that processing power? Um, would it actually make sense to apply that just because you could? Because uh, it doesn't seem to make a lot of cre things that would go that much effort. It's like, I built this huge thing f just so I could do something incredibly stupid with it or pointless. Um, so it, it usually to me does seem like either you got that one mind that's going for, you know, demigod-like status, or you're trying to like maximize how many human or post-human minds can be on in the virtual wards, or even skipping the virtual wards just to have the minds running. Um, and I don't know there'd be all that many other answers besides that. You could just say in general, if you have any problems left over that you haven't solved scientifically yet, like entropy, that's that's something you build a matrioscope for. I have a suspicion you would still fail to get uh, a resolution out of that, but one can always hope. Well, let's ponder that and come back after a short break, and we will take more of your questions in just a few minutes. Let's see you then. So we're here on break for a few minutes, and it's a good chance to grab a drink and a snack, like I'm probably doing right now, or to get more questions into our moderators for part two. We try to get to as many questions as we can during the show, but if we miss yours, you can put in the comments on the episode, and I try to get to most of those answered in a day or so. We had a lot of good ones during and after the show last time, and one pair from Atward has been on my mind a lot of late. It was, if Earth didn't become an oxygen-rich atmosphere, could complex or even intelligent life still be able to form? Is there any signs that there was anything bigger than single living cell on Earth from that time before oxygen? The second question is easier to answer, as it is simply yes. Multicellular life has evolved independently and repeatedly in Yorkyats, those are cells with nuclei, at least 25 times, but also in various prokaryotic life forms too. We believe the first occasion was somewhere between 3 and 3.5 billion years ago, pretty soon after life formed, and it does appear to be a very easy hurdle, which again has been jumped separately by evolution at least a couple dozen times. Whereas the oxygen-rich atmosphere, while varying in concentration over the eons, built up very rapidly over a period of about 10 million years. 2.33 billion years ago, a billion and a half years after life first emerged, and not much less for multicellular. However, there's a bit of a grain of salt on bigger than a single cell, because while we see multicellular life emerge, we don't see anything which is bigger than microscopic emerge until a billion and a half years after an oxygen-rich atmosphere came into play. Somewhere around 600 million years ago, organisms which were bigger began showing up, and thus it's hard to say that's because of oxygen appearing. Prior to this period, and for the vast majority of time life existed on this planet, there were no predatory prey cycles either, and the seas were very nutrient-rich. So it is hard to say that oxygen specifically was the reason for larger organisms emerging, but once that happened 600 million years ago, it wasn't terribly long before we had many larger organisms and the Cambrian explosion and predatory prey cycles. That said, it is really hard to imagine a mobile and fast organism not running on oxygen. You need some sort of rapid power source, and others are possible but would seem far less likely to evolve or have abundant competitive ecosystems. Obviously, we don't have many examples to work from, so it is possible the universe has many life-bearing planets that might run on different systems and run quite well or even better than oxygen sugar do for Earth. Life being what it is, highly adaptable, I would tend to think any place that had life emerge and that they had a reasonable abundant source of energy and nutrients should see ever-growing complexity, but that really needs the caveat of remembering that such organisms only arose on Earth 4 billion years after the planet formed. Anytime you have a process like evolution in play too, we can't just assume it runs at the same speed elsewhere. If every life form could be thought of as flipping a coin or rolling a dice on whether or not its existence moved the needle forward on evolution in some way, then a planet that could only support about a tenth of life, in terms of total biomass, and had to move and breed slower to build up resources to reproduce, say ten times the typical generational cycle to produce a viable offspring that reproduces itself, then a process that took a billion years here on Earth might take a hundred times longer on a more barren planet, 100 billion years. 8 times older than our universe, and that's actually being rather generous. 
Some process might be exponentially slower, so that two things which lower the odds tenfold like that individually actually powered on to be more like 10 to the 10th longer rather than 10 times 10, or 10 billion times longer rather than 100, meaning it would probably never happen even on planets around the longest lived red dwarfs. As to the free oxygen question, we'll be contemplating that more in our early February with a look at terraforming and Hycean planets, giant worlds with thick hydrogen-rich atmospheres but sea and land below. Now let's get back to our show and more of your questions. Alright, we're back for our last show of 2022, although as my wife noted there are actually a lot of folks who are already in 2023 right now, so for those of you who are getting ready to head into that or just on the edge of that or just got in there. Happy New Year, I hope 2023 is less aggravating than 2020 through 2022 seems to have been, so it's been very good years for me personally, but still aggravating, so. We wish you lots of health, happiness, and prosperity. Also, I, I did have a chance to look up what the expanding your theory was over the, uh, the, I was going to say commercial break, but it's just be talking, they don't need to run. and that is a fascinating theory that the, the idea of the Earth actually expands in size slowly over time from the early tectonic days from the 1800s, it's not really thought of very seriously these days and I'm aware of, but that's a neat one. So, um, Christian Carello, thank you for your super chat. He wants to know if creating true AI proves impossible, would that also mean that mind uploading is impossible as well? Um, I mean, I think it would be hard to say that creating true AI was impossible, more like you would say like creating true AI was something you hadn't actually pulled off yet. Um, I just generally tend to assume that the existence of a human brain uh, as an intelligence, and which again, now I think it was artificial, gives you some pathway to make something that is a human level intelligence but was not done the same way. Um, if it is one of those things where, like, it turned out there was a supernatural quality of humans that couldn't be replicated, right? Uh, take that in whatever particular fashion you know, it so appeals, um, then yes, you've got a problem. But even then, I think that would be a question of finding out how do I hack that and find a way to make one of those things too. You know, can you borrow or steal or buy souls to put inside your computer, for instance? I think he had a couple additional comments on that that I missed. Okay, um, go ahead. He said, after all, if we can expect computers to contain, how can we expect computers con- to contain a true consciousness if they can't even generate one? And then, secondly, could somehow incorporating human neurons to competing tech possibly lead to true AI? Think a reverse cyborg where you start with a robot, then add biology to it, which begs the question, why would we? Mm, um, I was thinking of the Positronic Man there by uh, Isaac Asimov and Robert Silverberg, which is a really good sci-fi story. Um, I think it was also called The Bicentennial Man, depending on which, which version is it. A novella and a short story version of it. Um, and in that, you actually have a, a android that's looking to become human over time. And it's a very, very touching story, but also very much a kind of a simplified version of the thesis ship, you know, what is the fundamental quality of human that you cannot be replaced? You know, is it the brain? Is it the heart? Is it the soul? Take your pick. Um, and the answer at the moment is that we do not know. So if there is one of those things that we don't know what it is and we find out there is something intrinsic to us that is not replicatable, then then we can't make AI. And so otherwise we should, I think, assume that we probably could. Um, on, oh. Damon Ogea says, you have said that Thanos' plan to solve overpopulation by killing half the population is rather dumb. YouTube won't show me any videos on the topic, so could you please explain to me why his plan makes no sense? Well, um, I'm surprised. I I get force-fed those videos, although I'm a bit of an MCU... Well, I shouldn't say I'm an MCU junkie. I'm a Marvel Comics junkie. Uh, And I have liked most of the MCU movies, uh, you know, obviously... Right from the get-go, Iron Man was good, Iron Man 2, not so good, a lot of the Hulk movies, not so good, but in spite of its many ups and downs, good good, uh, good cinematic setting. But alright, so the Thanos one that is in the the MCU is very different than the one that's in the comic books. In the comic books, the reason he wants to kill half the population is because he's trying to please his patron, which is the god of death. He just likes to kill people because he likes to kill people. Uh, that's, that's the Thanos of the comic books. Um, in the MCU... The idea is that he's going to kill off half the population. Well, let's say you go and kill half the, you know, half the bacteria, right? Well, tomorrow then they're all back because they replicate on, on like a one-day, you know, life cycle. Um, obviously, the concern there is with intelligent entities like humans. So you kill off half the intelligent species in the universe, and um, the universe theoretically 14 million years old is going to barely have a chance to take a quick breath and to be horrified at what you did. 
before, uh, you know, 100 years later, the population's right back to where it was before you did that. So you gotta keep doing that, right? Uh, same for you decided to double the resources, it doesn't really fit. That's usually what people say didn't make sense about, you know, Thanos' plan. And um, I think they did a good job making him more sympathetic that way. It doesn't really have to make much sense. I mean, it's the MCU, it's not really all that scientifically sound. Uh, they also played with him back in the Civil Soulful animated series in the late 90s. They didn't want to have him be a uh, follower of death, so his patron was Chaos instead. Uh, and that also kind of messed with the character a bit. But fascinating character in his portrayals of Leos, but uh, not really set on you know sane logical plans much either. DW, thank you for your super chat. I'm going to get so much hate mail about saying that last bit. Yes, Thanos is a very good villain who often thinks things through strategically too. <laughs> DW, thank you for your super chat. What's the difference between an MWI multiverse and the type of parallel universes that you discussed in the Edge of the Universe episode? No, well, my problem there is I have to remember what the ones I discussed in the Edge of the Universe were. Um, <laughs> because we've done a lot of episodes on alternate realities and things like that. So Edge of the Universe, if I remember right, was the one we were talking about why the cosmological event horizon exists and what that means. If I'm remembering that right, then we have been talking specifically about hyperspace, or we'd have been talking about um, the other parts of the universe that might be beyond ours, and like just if you could go faster than light, you'd reach other places, and that are the same as here. Um, hyperspace versions come in a lot of forms too, and that'd be like, let's say that, well, let's start simpler. In MWI, there are copies of Earth that are just a little bit different than us, right? That goes a lot further than that, though, because you have a copy of the Earth where it is one atom bigger than it is right now, but otherwise identical. Then you have another copy of the Earth from 4 billion years ago where it's the same size and makeup as Mars. So it is very, very broad. But it's basically all your what-ifs, but with the same rules. You're, you're using the same basic rules. In a hyperspace concept or other types of ones where you have congruent universes, it could be the same type of universe, the same laws of physics, but the speed of light is 1 meter per second faster. Or 10 times faster. Uh, or the universe is 1 tenth its current size because it's younger, and thus you could travel to two congruent points and pop back in and have traveled ten times more distance than you normally would. Uh, there's a lot of options in those kind of scenarios, but usually we were talking about various things. MWI is the what-if universe of things being just a little bit different in terms of events. Um, then you have ones where the physical constants have been changed in some fashion, you know. Um, and then you have ones where it would be more like there's four physical dimensions, you know, or five real ones expanded. Um, then you have the ones where it's all the same, but the age is different or some... Very critical thing is just a little bit different nudged, right? All of those are options for multiverses. And there is a couple different taxonomies for that. I think Tegmark has four. There's another we talked about in the alternate universes episode. There's a different, like nine different types. And type nine is the really extreme one of all possible mathematically representable concepts as universes. So just generally speaking, though, as I always like to remind people, the amount of proof we have backing up the existence of any of these is zero. None. <laughs> zero. So. Goose egg. Yeah. Nancy Mattis, thank you for your super chat. She says, are we as a species overall decent and good who by now at this stage of our existence truly care about each other being happy? I mean, I think so. We're not sociopaths. Um, some are. Yeah, some are. But, but the, the thing is, they are, they are the abnormal. You know, they, they are not the norm, at least currently. I don't know if we can really extrapolate how people behave, say, two, three thousand years ago. Um, I would think that even then, I don't think they'd been terribly sociopathic. Um, although I think that there's probably some psychology anyway to say that you really shouldn't use that term that way. Um, but let's just say there were, there were people who had been a lot less compassionate in the past, probably. But in nature, you certainly see a lot less compassion. People say, well, humans are the only species that makes war and is cruel. And so that's every every part of that statement was wrong. Um, humans are the only species that actually seems, and that's not really true either. But the only species that really seems to care much about when we do misbehave. You know, um, you do see compassion in other animals, but it is a much more limited, short term kind of thing. Uh, and so, I would say that while we certainly have a capacity to be far crueler than anything in nature, it's uh, mostly different in the sense that we have the capacity to be far kinder. And I think that's a, that's a learned trait, and civilization is a process of learning. So that is one of the things I feel optimistic about. As long as you're keeping your records, as long as you're learning from the mistakes of the past by remembering them, which we do, for the most part, do, if somewhat haphazardly, then you can make progress towards being better. I hope. Uh, we have another super chat here from Alexander Padashev. Thank you, Alexander. <laughs> what is the next step for Earth 
to LEO transportation after the SpaceX Starship. Okay, so, um, hmm, what gets us to space faster than that? I, I'd say the next actual step is probably just going to be another improvement on reusable rockets. That seems where people are going right now. Um, I would love, I would love to start seeing something like an orbital ring or you know a large loop being used, but there's such a heavy investment to prototyping that that I think that until we actually have kind of ground out that market with reusable rockets. I don't think you see one pushing towards doing that. So it's one of those set examples of when a technological improvement in one area can kind of grind uh, to halt research in other areas, uh, which we often see with energy, for instance. But at the same time, if things keep improving, you know, if they're not improving in all the categories you like, can't complain too much. So I think the next step with something for low Earth orbit is probably just going to be more rocketry, better or faster reusable ones. Right now, the biggest thing is it's not really the fuel that's the main cost. It's all the repairs and all the precision work that have to be done to make the rocket and recover it. We are going to get better at doing that cheaper and, and, and lower scale, and that will make it cheaper. Robert wants to know how long until all of the electric vehicles are powered by nuclear fusion. <clears throat> um, you know, that's a tricky one because it depends on what you mean by that. I would not expect to ever get a, a cool little micro-fusion reactor like there was in, what was it, Back to the Future. He shows up uh, at the end of the... Last movie, the the second movie, he's got a little Mr. Fusion in his vehicle instead of the plutonium reactor he had in part one. Um, I don't expect to see a reactor at that scale. And the other thing about fusion is you need to do better than stars do because, again, like you really get very little energy production off of you know a kilogram of matter of of your know, star core matter uh, compared to something like gasoline. It's just they would do it for billions of years. Um, let's see. You get more like supernova grade uh, power sources when you actually want to run something like it was running on a normal gas generator. Uh, the thing there is that it depends what you mean by being run by fusion. And of course, if you are 100% solar economy, uh, well, that's fusion. And they say, well, you know, it is here. We're using the Sabateo process to to retroactively make methane to power things or hydrogen or you know, straight gasoline from the atmosphere. And uh, now that's fusion-based economy with everyone still running on a gas engine, you know. Uh, so it depends on what you really mean by that. But I think if the context was when do we have gigantic fusion reactors powering the economy, I'm not going to say 20 years. I don't think that's true at the moment anyway, but it's such a cliche to say it. But this century, I think this century. If it's possible, we'll get it done this century. Albert Jackinson says, In science fiction, nanomachines for construction are commonly depicted... And it just jumped and I lost the rest of the question. Um, I, One well, second. Are they story? Uh, is that the question? Actually, I gotta what is the difference between those depictions and what nanomachines can actually achieve and where is the line? Sorry about that. Yeah, I've got the questions over here on this other screen. It's just, it's, it's, I've got to look way over here for it. Um, so there's a lot of problems with nanomachines. There was an argument, and I'm trying to remember what the names are. They had a debate on it, but it was about the sticky fingers. But if you look up the... Sticky fingers problem, you'll see a scientist attached to it who was involved in a very long debate about the topic of what the limitations on nanotech were. Um, and I think the biggest one is we forget how insanely fragile things are. Like, thinking evolution-wise, things have gotten, I wouldn't say bigger over time, but they, you know, they've gotten more divorced, mostly it's still small. Why haven't they gotten smaller? You should be evolving smaller if you could. If evolution is trying to constantly get more for less, it should be trying to miniaturize where it can. Your bottom level cell should be shrinking. And we see that with viruses. Now people say, well, viruses are tough to kill. No, viruses are stupidly easy to kill. The problem is that all the techniques we have for using them are basically, let's hit this with a sledgehammer, and it's kind of like trying to kill a mouse by bombing the building that lives in. That will absolutely work. But the problem is that if all you've got is a gigantic gun that blows up houses, your mouse hunting inside a populated area that you'd like to want not damage is tricky. <coughs> Viruses are not tough. It's just that they are really hard to target. And that's because they're very small, but they're also really simple. Part of why they are not really all that impressive is they're, they're really simple, right? Uh, they're also really fragile um, because they're really small. And there's a minimum size you'll see with cells. I, I would actually guess that the original cell was bigger than the smallest cells we have nowadays. Probably smaller than most of the cells, but smaller, bigger than the smallest ones. Because there's only small small you can really make something before it's going to just not walk. And right now, your typical small cell is like a trillion atoms, you know? 
if it could be smaller, if it could just be like a billion atoms, that would be a pretty big deal. That would be a lot more efficient. And you'd think that it would have gotten there if it could, right? That, you know, the, the evolution's made some pretty big bounds in scale. So if it should be able to get smaller, especially since most of life gene mutating is small. So you could build something from the ground floor up that's smaller, but don't assume that you can build something that's like five atoms across and is capable of self-replicating. It's, it's not not going to be that easy. They're going to be fragile. They're going to break easy. If you want to make them sturdy or stronger or quicker, you're going to have to make other sacrifices in terms of making them bigger, making them need more power, making them slower, etc. There will be trade-offs. I'm not saying that nanotech wouldn't be much more impressive than biology, but don't think it's going to be like, oh, I dropped one little nanobot on the planet and five minutes later it's turned it into a spaceship. And not quite how that works. Sonobello <laughs> says, how realistic do you think the absence in House of Suns is as I work around to prevent breaks in causality? Hmm. Um, oh, we did an episode some years back for Christmas called the Santa Claus Machine episode. It was the last time we did an episode on uh, Christmas. It was one of the reasons why I didn't do the live stream on Sunday like normal when it would be Christmas. Is that episode did very badly on that day and then did very good the days afterwards. But the Santa Claus Machine episode does go into a lot of the specific reasons why they all know it's what you can do with like replicating technology, whether it's Star Trek replicators or whether it's nanotech that's very tiny. So the absence from Alistair Reynolds' book, The House of Suns, is an area of, it's, well, spoilers, it's the Andromeda Galaxy, but um, they can't see the Andromeda Galaxy more. It's set about six million years in the future, and somewhere in there, a few million years before that, the Andromeda Galaxy just disappeared. And the reason given for that there is that when they built a wormhole, it just disappeared out of nowhere. Uh, to the Andromeda Galaxy, uh, the way they got on a causality there was to have the thing disappear so that you couldn't, like, do the normal time travel tricks that you could do with a wormhole for violating causality. See our episode wormholes for details of what those are. Um, I would say as hand waves go, it's magnificent. Alistair Mounds is a very good cosmologist. He knows what he's talking about, but it is still a hand wave. I don't think that would actually work, but it sounds like a cool answer, and it, it was a very good one for, like, what the Buddhist void would have been, which we didn't really know at that time what that was. And people propose it might be like a mega civilization. So, wonderful book it is a it would probably the best one he's ever written, and he writes some good ones. But I wouldn't call that the hardest sci-fi example from him. Although he does keep it pretty realistic, and I love that it's still slower than light, except for that giant wormhole. Don't forget your sunscreen says. What do you think about the aliens in the SCP universe, such as SCP seven nine nine three? I'm not sure what that is. Okay. Moving on. I feel like I should. I, I, someone sent that to me, I think. I, I'm sorry. I can't recall what that is right now. I, <laughs> What's the next one? Um, let's see. Now, that one's repeated multiple times. So, yeah, repeated again. So, I'm not really sure what that one is either. Question? Uh, I, I'm not seeing the question. Yeah, it's at the bottom. Um, okay. Anyway, do you think walking mechs will take the place of tanks in warfare? That one. Go ahead. Okay. Well, well, now you should ask the question. Or you just read it. Okay. So the question being, do you think that walking mechs will ever take the place of tanks in warfare? And the answer is, my wife doesn't watch anime and hasn't seen Battletech, so that's why she doesn't know how to be that one. There's <laughs> always so much sci-fi I can get her to go in for. Um, so, no, because for the most part, wheel track vehicles are actually a lot better than um, than legs. The legs had their usage, but I don't think that in most environments they're going to make that much of a difference. And if you just need the ability to get around fast, then that's where you start going for something that's more aerial. They're cool, though. Everybody wants a giant battle mech. And uh, we did an episode on that, too. Uh, I think that was one where I, I said how disappointed and sad I was that I, I just couldn't find an excuse why that would be a technology people used. Um, maybe I should do an episode on that again. Giant battle mecha. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, Sonobella also had a question. Could we have an alien entity that we recognize as sapient and yet be completely unable to communicate with them, like in the novel Solaris? Um, I mean, it's worth pointing out that in Solaris they do end up communicating with, uh, with the entity to some degree, obviously. It's, it's more that they, they can't communicate very clearly. And I think that, like, so, so we don't know that it's indefinitely impossible to make contact that way, just that they haven't figured out there yet. Um, Alice, not Alice, Orson Scott called plays with that in his um, Endos game series, the uh, books Speaker Through the Dead through, oh good god, what's the, there's another one after Children of the Mind too, but uh, the idea being that there were um, uh, types of aliens that were very like you psychologically, that's about physical, you know, in terms of brain architecture, the ones that you could never really be 
calm or happy with because you just were too far apart that you was like orange and blue morality. It wasn't really good or evil, but more like apples and oranges. And the other ones where you just couldn't have a conversation. He had some names for those that he made. I just can't call it all. Um, I think that you could potentially have that, but to me, the whole concept of intelligence is rational reasoning capability. You know, the ability to start doing logic and math and contemplating things. And I feel like that should always leave you an avenue where two species or two minds should be able to eventually, not say this would ever actually necessarily work for them, but eventually find a way that they've just worked it hard enough uh, to actually speak. Of course, they might say, wow, now that I understand you better, I can't wait to kill you off because it might turn out that you just find them inimical to you. So the ability to actually have conversations, as Douglas Adams pointed out in his novel Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy with the Babelfish, uh, the ability to have an instant translation of everything caused more and bloodier wars than anything ever before in his universe, just because once you know for sure what people are saying, it's so much easier to decide to go ahead and slap them. <laughs> so. Michael Fascio says, I found your channel yesterday. Can't stop watching it. Awesome. Thank you and welcome on board. We have a super chat from Vincent Cleaver. Thank you. Happy New Year. How are the kids? They are quiet at the moment. I don't hear them. That is good. Bella, uh, excuse me. Good the goal. The daughter is watching with grandma. Sorry, daughter. <laughs> <clears throat> and the boys are being entertained by something other than daddy. Well, before the show got started, we just have to do like pre-checks on all the cameras and audio to make sure they are all set. And I can never really reuse things because we only do this once a month. So the goal um, was helping with the uh, setup on that. Did a wonderful rendition of the ABC. She's in kindergarten, so that's still fairly impressive. Um, so helped us get our sound in place before we got started. Yes, sorry about that. Well, they're okay. doing wonderful and they're awesome. Yes. And we have one here for, um, no, I think I read that one already. I think that I actually might have gotten through the majority of these. Well, pretty close Did to the end get... of the show. Do we get a lightning event on this or? Let's see. Um, I think I didn't ask this one from Felipe Gonzalez. Mm -hmm. What do you think about size change technology like Ant-Man? A little MCU novel uh, movie that's, uh, well, I'm looking forward to the Quantum Mania episode. And we actually kind of clicked baiting a title on there because I, Decided to do an episode called Multi, uh, Multiverse Warfare um, right after I got done doing the Time Warfare episode. And when I noticed it was going to come out in February about the same time that uh, Quantum Mania was coming out, I decided to go ahead and call it Multiversal Warfare and Quantum Mania and have it come out the day before the movie comes out. Um, so technology of that variety, no. And, and here's why. Uh, as you're saying with these things, you don't just get to subtract out particles or just shrink things and have them stay at the same scale. Um, you can't make a star that's a thousand times bigger because the fundamental mechanics will make it break down. It's going to die before it even has a chance to ignite in a case like that. Um, or go wolf ray yet, anyway. Um, you don't just get to shrink things without changing them. So what you could do in a case like that is like give yourself the fantastic voyage approach of uh, we're going to put you all in robots, in little androids that are all shrunk down, and you can go pilot those virtually and run around inside of people which I think they did in Futurama too. Uh, we did have the shrink ray in that one. Um, yeah, it's been done so many times. Fantastic Voyage by Isaac Asimov uh, is not ironically one of his better known novels, but it's been parodied so much um, in movies and TV shows. Um, it's not really one of those things that would work. You can't really shrink or expand that way because the mechanics change too much. But you could always build something like that and then implant the brain or remotely control it. Ace Undead says, do you think Kevin McAllister from Home Alone could outwit a group of Yatja from Predator movie series? The, the, do we think the, ah, um, <laughs> that Kevin McAllister could outwit the Predator? Um, a group of Yatja from the Predator. Okay. And that, so there's another one we haven't watched because I, I started playing that. And I, was like, I think we got to the point where they were... Gunning down the force, you said you didn't want to watch the rest of the movie. So, <laughs> uh, that's, that's the most impressive usage of ammo I've ever seen in a film before. I love that scene uh, in the original Predator movie. Um, I don't know, because the Predator in those things are actually often very stupid, depending on who's writing them. It's kind of like the aliens from the uh, Alien franchise. Depending on the portrayal, they can either be incredibly clever or incredibly scary, or just kind of incredibly stupid, um, which can be scary sometimes, too. Um... No, I don't think he'd be able to outwit them in the end, though, just because, well, it's the Predator. It's, it's good at hunting people. So. <laughs> Andrew Meter Home says... Home Alone 5. <laughs> Whatever they're up to now. They, they, I think they're over 7. 
Home Alone 13, then. Yeah. The Halloween version. Andrometer, I've only seen short sections of the Q&A live streams before. Wow, I'm impressed watching properly. The interim break was great, and the upcoming episodes, <clears throat> the main Q&A. Thank you. <laughs> um, <clears throat> I think I've gotten through all of the main questions here, but we have a lot of wishes from around the world for a happy new year. We hope yours is happy, prosperous, and healthy as well. So and do you have any party new year's resolutions? Uh, hmm. No, because I, I, I will about not actually having new year's resolutions. They just work out well for the people. So <laughs> I would say if you've got new year's resolutions, resolve to actually pick ones that are achievable and pursue them. So, you know. But uh, I think beyond that, no, I, I wish I would. I think <clears throat> I'm hoping that 2023 will be uh, more relaxed year than 2022 has been as well. And uh, I think, as we said in one of the episodes, they are. It can seem like it's been a kind of a bit of a bleak year in some ways, but at the same time, it's still been a very good year for a lot of us. You know, personally, I've had a great year. Uh, so I thought year of being married to a beautiful wife, and now I got three wonderful kids, and I love my job so much. So. And you guys are a lot of the reason why I do love my job because I do have basically the best audience out there. And that's not just me saying that. There's a lot of other people who watch this show or YouTube creators. And it is very common for them to express jealousy about our audience and how awesome it is. So, And I agree. They're right. Our audience is better. <laughs> so. With that, we wish our, our fantastic fans a wonderful, happy 2023, which we get to count down to in about seven hours. And on that note, everyone, we will see you on Thursday. Happy New Year, and I hope you have a great year. <laughs>